The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word now to John 4. John 4 is where we continue this series called Authentic that we kicked off earlier this month as we look at what an authentic worshiper really is. We began a few weeks ago at the end, right, in the book of Revelation. Last week, we went backwards to the Old Testament, and today we now look at what Jesus has to say about this topic of worship. And haven't you ever noticed how Jesus has this, like, deliberate way of taking the way things we've always done them and then completely flips it on its head? You notice how Jesus has just this very deliberate way in his earthly life of changing everything. It's like he's on a mission to do just that. Things like social norms and relationships, church, even worship. It's as if Jesus knows that left to ourselves, we would make everything about ourselves, which ultimately ruins everything, doesn't it? And so Jesus, in a way that only he can do, he casts a vision for something greater. And he does, and as he does that, rather, he sets us free to live for his glory and our good. And this is what Jesus does in this passage today. He takes uh, our thinking on worship and he transforms it. Casting a vision and setting a trajectory for all who would truly worship God forever. Of the passage that we are about to look at in John 4, the pastor and theologian John MacArthur says in his book, Worship, he says of John 4, it is the most definitive, the most important, and the clearest teaching on the theme of worship in all the New Testament. Now that's a weighty endorsement, isn't it? That's a weighty thing to say about any passage of scripture. So why don't we go ahead and read it for ourselves, shall we? Look at your copy here. I'm going to read the first half or so of John 4. I'll stop at verse 26. Follow along in your copy now. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one, now, uh, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word for God's people. This is a profound passage, is it not? It's a profound passage. And the central theme of what we've just read is this, that Jesus transforms the way we worship. Jesus transforms the way we worship. See, all in this passage, what Jesus is doing as he interacts with this woman is, as we've said at the beginning, he is turning things on their head because he alone is worthy. And left to ourselves, we mess everything up. And so he mercifully, mercifully goes after his people and graciously teaches us how to worship. And he does so here in this passage. See, verses 1 through 6 really provide the context of how Jesus transforms the way we worship. They provide the context. They set the scene. See, to get the context also, you may want to go back to John 3. You're probably familiar with John 3. Every person in here probably has likely heard John 3, 16, right? We've probably heard that. And in John 3, uh, you know, this uh, Jesus transformed this concept of salvation and his midnight appointment with Nicodemus, that rich, religious, Jewish Pharisee. And now he's left Judea. He's headed north up into Samaria, into this town called Sychar, this area that was given to uh, Joseph by his father Jacob. Go back and read it in Genesis 48 as he gives his inheritance here. That's the area that they're at. And now it's about noon. They're at a well. And like Jesus had a midnight appointment with Nicodemus, now he has a midday appointment with this woman. He has a divine appointment. Did you see in verse 12 here where it says he had to pass through Samaria? You see that? Not if you see it, yeah? Do you see it? He had to. Underline that in your Bible. See, the, the theme here in John's gospel is how determined and how deliberate Jesus is on his mission. Jesus doesn't just like show up in a barn in Bethlehem and he's just like going with the flow. Just kind of passing through life, reacting to the crowds, the people that come around him. No, Jesus is in charge of every step. 
Jesus is calculating every move. He is in command of every situation. He is deliberately seeking out those whom he would redeem. He came on a deliberate mission. And so when verse 4 says that he had to pass through Samaria, it was not just because that was the shortest route to which he was going. Think less in terms of you have to drive down Freiheit Road to get to Freiheit Elementary and more like Jesus had a very specific divine appointment. He had specifically a divine appointment with this outcast Samaritan woman and he was about to rock her life, wasn't he? She comes to the well when really no one should have been there at noon She was coming to seek water, to just make this daily, probably, trip to get water and head back home, only to have her life suddenly interrupted. And in transforming her life and interrupting her life, uh, Jesus also transforms the way that we worship, even we here and now. And he teaches us to get the right person. See, Jesus transforms the way we worship by teaching us to seek the right person, to seek the right person. The first six verses really provide the context now for the meat of his interaction with the Samaritan woman that teaches us our lesson. It teaches us to get the right person or to seek the right person. Imagine this woman's surprise to find a Jewish man at the well. You know, just you can kind of picture the scene. Maybe she was just humming a tune and, you know, looking out to the beautiful landscape, or maybe she was just lost in her thoughts, hurried there. When out of, you know, her little like world that she was in, and she hears these words, give me a drink. Do you think she was startled? Probably. And startled to find this man here at the well. Don't you just love like in verse eight there in these like par, par, uh, the parentheses, right? It's like John's commentary. He's like helping us out here uh, for his readers. You know, his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. And so they were on their journey. The disciples go, leave Jesus there because we've seen that he is weary. And then this woman meets Jesus who's left there on his own and he makes this request, give me something to drink. I find something interesting here that we're never told if she actually complies. Is Jesus just like left thirsty through this whole interaction? Or did she actually get him something? But really what we do know is she's astonished. Which is like she, why she replies like she does. She's a woman. She's an outcast. She's a Samaritan. That's like bang, bang, bang. Three strikes. They would have no dealings. But really, beloved, we know this. Jesus is all about crossing these social boundaries, isn't he? It doesn't matter that she's a woman or an outcast or even a Samaritan. She was probably perplexed, but not Jesus. And to understand really the the nuances and the perplexities here, we have to kind of understand some of the historical context, the historical background. It's like you read this and you're like, what's so bad about the Samaritans, right? Like, what's up with them? Why do Jews have no interactions with them? Well, uh, let me just give you a little bit of the background. Samaritans, they were of mixed ancestry. You have to go way back. If you remember even last week, we were talking about the time of King David when the kingdom of Israel was united under one king. Then his son Solomon came, and then after Solomon, the kingdom divided. The northern uh, kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And then there's a whole history, if you read like Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, of all these very wicked kings, right? 
all these very wicked kings. And so God in his judgment, because these kings and the Israelites began to turn away from the Lord, he brings these, these uh, other nations, these other nations to come and bring judgment upon them. Particularly for Israel, it is the Assyrians that come and take them captive and then take out the people from the land, only leaving the poor or the sick behind because they were a liability. They, did not, they left them in the land of Israel. And so as those uh, that were left behind stay there, they began to intermarry with other, with other nations. And in so doing and in marrying other nations, they then corrupt the faith and they establish their own religion keeping just the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Bible. And they even go so far as to build a temple on Mount Gerizim where they are at here in Samaria. Probably not right on, the temp on that mount, but they are there. They build a temple, which was actually destroyed before this time. If you're a history buff, it was destroyed in 128 BC. Um, but interestingly enough, the Samaritan people still exist to this day and still worship as they do. And so you can see a bit of the background why the Jewish people hated them because at this point now the Jews had come back to the land and now they saw these, these people as those that had not corrupted their race but also corrupted their faith, worshipped a different God and worshipped in a different place. And this is why the Jews hated them. And she had probably, because she was a woman, because she was an outcast and because she was a Samaritan, had been treated contemptuously her whole life. And now this Jewish man is here talking to her. And don't you love just in this kind of interaction, her astonishment, she's like, wait, why are you talking to me? All this, and in verse 10, look at it here, verse 10, Jesus just goes like straight to the heart, doesn't he? Just like straight to the heart. He goes, he's, he's like, if only you knew who I was, you wouldn't be asking this question. But she doesn't quite get it yet, does she? She doesn't quite get it. And so uh, she's beginning to see something different about him. She's like, wait, are you like greater than our ancestor here? Do you see this? Verse 12. She's like, you don't have anything to draw water in verse 11. And now verse 12, are, are you greater than Jacob? He's the one who gave us the well. And she's like, no, no. In verse 13, no, no. No, no. He's leading her to see. He's drawing out the heart by asking these heart penetrating questions. He's saying, I'm not talking about physical water here, am I? Jesus is going straight to the heart of pointing out something in this woman that there is, there's a heart issue at play here. There's a heart issue. And he offers her something that she just really can't even comprehend. What do you mean there's this water that I could drink and never have to drink again? I mean, that sounds pretty, pretty awesome, right? It's just like one of those like, you know, Powerades or Gatorades and you just chug that and done for the rest of your life. I don't have to worry about water breaks and all that stuff, but it's not what he's talking about, is he? He's going to the heart. He's going to the heart to where she finds her satisfaction. So much so he, he, he jumps to another thing because he's not done pointing out what's, what's going on in her heart. He uses this point of water to then, and then he, he, he opens up something else in verse 16, doesn't he? Look what it says, verse 16. It, it kind of is this weird jump here. He says, well, go call your husband and come here. See, he has one more thing to point out. She's an adulteress looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places and in all the wrong people. 
He's saying, I'm here before you. He has a divine appointment to show something is wrong with her heart. And so we ask the question then, well, what does this have to do with worship? Everything has everything to do with worship. To truly worship, our desires and our, affect, and our affections must be rightly ordered. And so as, as, as Jesus comes and encounters this woman at the well, he graciously shows that he is better by exposing in her and subsequently in us as Jesus comes by pointing out that we have holes and are satisfactory. It's a play on words here the factory where our affections and our desires are produced. We say it like it's our heart, right? We have holes in our heart. We are too easily satisfied in temporary things. But when it comes to worship, what does the Lord want? He wants our whole heart. This is why you see in the Psalms, I give thanks to you, with my whole heart. Jesus doesn't just want a little bit of you. He doesn't just want your affections for an hour on a Sunday. He wants your desires and your affections all through your life. See, we all seek satisfaction somewhere, don't we? In temporary things, things that are genuinely good but we can take them too far. We can make them idols. We can try to make them be our sole satisfaction. We find this in our spouse or in our significant other. We try to find our satisfaction, our value in our kids. We try to find things in our friends or our pets or our hobbies or food or drink, but beloved, only Jesus truly satisfies. Only Jesus truly, eternally satisfies. Water satisfies temporarily. Intimacy is a fleeting satisfaction, but Jesus offers eternal satisfaction. The joy of knowing him, the joy of growing in him, the joy of showing him to the world around us is a satisfaction that only Jesus can provide. And so just like, just like Jesus comes to this woman and exposes these things in a very gracious way, not bringing condemnation, not, not uh, treating her with contempt like many probably had. He graciously comes and presses into her life and exposes these holes. Has he been exposing some things in your life? Has he come into the light of his presence? As his grace and his mercy shines upon you? Is he exposing things that may be hindering your worship, that are depriving him of glory? Is there a temporary pleasure that you're clinging to so tightly? You're seeking it in the wrong person. Will you persist in it or humbly, like the woman, look at her response. And will you humbly say, what you have said is true? And seek our satisfaction in the right person. Only Jesus truly satisfies, beloved. Only Jesus truly satisfies. See here, her transformation, it continues. He's, he's transforming the way this woman views life, the way that she worships, and she's, he's teaching her to get the right person and also to get the right place. Get the right place. 
Do you see how perplexed the woman is? He's just talked about woman. He's just, or he's just talked with the woman about water. And then he goes to her relationships with a multitude of men and she's perplexed, right? Look at verse 19. How can he know these things about me? He must be a prophet, right? Like only Jesus really has this kind of, he knows everything about her. And so the fact that he's said it, it's just like mind blown. Who are you? Have you been spying on me? You have one of those cameras? Like, who are you? You must be a prophet. You must be a prophet. And then it kind of like, the, the conversation gets really interesting here, doesn't it? In verse 20, now all of a sudden she jumps to this mountain, this place of worship. And when you first read it, it's like, is this one of those like disconnected jumps or like one of those like deflections that happen, you know, like a, at Christmas dinner? You have somebody over and they start talking about politics and the conversation just gets really awkward really quick, right? And so you're just like, I don't know what to do. I don't know. I'm going to deflect the conversation. Hey, how about those cowboys, right? <laughs> is that what she's doing here, do you think? It's like you just exposed, the, you're talking about water. I'm so confused. Now you've gotten into my business that I don't want you in. So let's talk about a mountain where people worship, right? You think it's a, a deflection or some kind of just like disconnected jump, like squirrel? Is it one of those things? Or is it connected? What do you think? It's connected. That's right. It's connected. Everything's connected, right? Everything is connected. Jesus is deliberate. He is taking her to a place. It's actually a direct connection. See, Jesus is working on her heart. He is rightly ordering her heart for worship. And this raises the question. It is again exposing something in her mind of what worship is that's ultimately wrong. It has raised this question of, well, how do we worship? And then in her mind, well, where do we worship? See, in that day, I've already uh, kind of described for you the clash between these two parties. And what, where it really clashed was that the Samaritans said, no, we worship on Mount Gerizim. And the Jews have always said, no, we worship on Jerusalem, on the Mount there. And as you see all throughout the Old Testament, that has been the center place of God's presence among his people. Remember, as we even looked at last week in 1 Chronicles 16, there was great joy and worship because the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, his symbolic presence, had returned to Jerusalem. And so now she's pointing out, she's like, hey, well, which place is it? We say here, you say there, and Jesus has to go and transform her thinking that, get this, beloved, worship is not about a location. It's about the Lord. Worship is not about a location, but about the Lord. Verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. It's not about that. It's not about where we worship, but it's about the Lord. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews because Jesus has come through the Jewish people. See, church, in the same way that worship is not about a building, it's not about a place we gather for a few hours on the first day of the week. No, worship is a way of life. Worship is about adoring God daily, of thanking him in your thoughts as you go, of, of worshiping him with your actions as you serve him in all that you do. See, because the Lord is everywhere, and he's involved in everything, we can worship him everywhere and in everything. You see the connection? While we're on the go, 
while we are in our car, while we are at work, while you are at home, while you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, we live lives of worship. And it is not just about going to a certain place. And this may raise questions in your mind right away. Does this diminish what we're doing right here? Did you just give us permission? Is Jesus just saying like, no, you don't have to come to church on a Sunday morning anymore. Worship them where you go. Does it diminish what we're doing right now? Absolutely not. It actually only accentuates it. See, if we are living lives of worship all throughout the week, what could we want to do more than gather on the first day, the first morning of the week with God's people to lift his name high together? It only actually accentuates what we are doing here. So Jesus isn't just uh, overthrowing this. We see this all through the scriptures. We are commanded to gather with God's people to declare his praise. And so it accentuates it. And even on the flip side, even if you haven't had a great week of worshiping, of living a life of worship all throughout the week, even if your week has been terrible, and things just haven't gone wrong and you've been in a funk or something's not happening, where else would you want to be than on a Sunday morning with God's people uh, lifting your spirits up? Where else would you want to be than among God's people to reorient your priorities, to reorient where you find your satisfaction? But see, Jesus, he's teaching us that it's not about a place. It's about a lifestyle. It's about being in the presence of God. And so this, again, raises another question. Well, how do we worship everywhere and in everything? You ever wondered that? Like, like, be real with me. Do you ever wonder, like, how can I worship at work? You know, like, I, I work in concrete. I, you know, I work in an office. How do I, that's not very worshipful, is it? Yeah. I guess I could turn, like, Caleb on and have some Christian music on and sing all day. But then my coworkers may not like me, right? You ever thought about this? Like, how do we worship everywhere and in everything? Well, it's really no different than what we do here on Sunday mornings. We respond to him in the, when we hear his truth with thanksgiving. As we see him at work, as we, as we get glimpses of him coming through, as we remember throughout the day his attributes, the promises that he's made of how we are greatly loved. You worship throughout the day just in quiet songs, the songs of your heart, the songs of your mind, the songs that you sing out as you're driving down I-35 to work in the morning. You worship him in that way by ascribing him glory of giving him credit when he comes through and when he takes away, of blessing him with your sal- for your salvation. As you wake up this morning, and you, or in every morning, and you see the sun rise, you're reminded of God's faithfulness to you. You bless the Lord for his faithfulness to you. You worship the Lord throughout the week as you serve him, as you use your gifts to serve your neighbors, as you share generously, as you do good to others, as you live out the great commission to make disciples as you live out the great commandments to love God and love your neighbor. See, beloved, all of these things are acceptable sacrifices to the Lord. They're acceptable to him. They please him as we who are saved live out these lives of gratitude and praise before the Lord in all that we do. Whether you eat or whether you drink and whatever you do, do what? Do all to the glory of God. That's living a life of worship all throughout the week. And this is what we who are saved get to do. 
Amen? Do we do, the, do we do these things uh, in order to earn God's favor? Do we do all these good things and share generously and, and, and sing out so that way God sees us and we're like, hey, come on, God, do me a favor. No, we do it because we get to. This is the beauty of being a believer. This is the beauty of God bringing us into his family as we now get to live a life of worship. And there's a manner in which we do all this. See, we seek the right person. We seek the right place. But he goes on here and concludes this really interaction with this woman initially to get the right passion. We're to seek out the right passion. See, Jesus knows how easy it is for us to go in the ditch. See, he just has exposed a, a, a way that we as human beings go in the ditch so often. We make things about us. We make things about a location. And you say, no, no, worship is about whom? It is about the Lord. He knows how easy it is. He knows how easy it is to make life about us. And so Jesus really gave these bumpers here to keep us headed vertically. He gave us these bumpers to really transform the way that we worship. We worship in spirit and in truth. See, in verse 23, he continues this line of reasoning. We seek out the right passion. He says, but the hour is coming and it's now here. See, if you've read through the book of John, this is a theme that he includes here. See, I've already said Jesus is deliberate. He came on a very intentional, determined mission. And so you see this term here, his hour had not come, so he didn't do certain things. People would come and request him. He says, hour hasn't come. It's not my time to do this. It's not my time to go to the cross. But there is a time when he says, okay, my hour has come, and it's now here. He's transforming worship right now, right in that moment with that woman. He's kind of standing on the precipice there of both uh, the old and the new covenant. He's saying, it's here, it's changing, it's now because I'm here. Because I'm here. He stands in the gap. And because Jesus is there, and because the Lord's presence is among us, it transforms the way that we worship. We worship in spirit and in truth, and these are the people that God is seeking. His worshipers, those whom he has redeemed, who tow this line of spirit and in truth. And this isn't optional, is it? Look at it, it's not, it's not optional. Look here, look at verse 24 as it goes on. He's like, he, he, he just really doubles down on it. He says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then he goes in verse 24, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must, Circle that in your Bible so you never miss that again. Must worship in spirit and in truth. It's more than a style. It's more than an expression. It must be defined by spirit and in truth. Terms that define our worship like traditional or contemporary are really foreign to scripture. They're horizontal mindsets because worship isn't about us. It isn't about our preferences. It isn't ultimately what we get out of it. Worship is about the Lord. Amen. We engage with the truth and that moves us. It moves our spirit. And this obviously happens when we're singing, but it happens all throughout the week. We worship in spirit and in truth. And it's like these bumpers here. It's a vertical mindset. It's a vertical mindset. Look at this little gauge that I've put together for you. It's a vertical mindset as we come to worship. We engage with the truth of who God is. 
We engage with the truth of who God is and that moves our spirit to respond to him. Some very passionately, some, uh, uh, you know, maybe less expressive. It's less about raising our hands. It's less about uh, how we demonstrate that. But truth always moves us. But the problem is, is we get off vertical and we end up going one way or another. And we have these tendencies and we can get too much about the emotion, right? We can get too much about the spirit and then it can just really become this enthusiastic nonsense. We lose the truth and it's just about the feeling. It's about, you know, the, the music. It's about how I feel. And we're really enthusiastic. The, there's the zeal part of it, the spirit that is required but we're not responding to anything just except of how it makes me feel. But we can also, if we get too much in a horizontal mindset, it can take us the other way, right? We can be orthodox, meaning that we're right in our doctrine, right in our teaching, and just kind of nonchalant about it. And you've probably maybe been in, in, in both of these, like, you know, services somewhere on this scale. And when we make it about us, we're going to go into one of those two ditches. But when our eyes are on Christ, beloved, when our eyes are fixed vertically and we come to church, we live our life because we want to know Christ and to make him known. See, doctrine, the truth of God's word, isn't something that's just kind of dead, dusty, and divides us. No, the truth of God's word makes us respond to him. And this is what we're after. This is what we're after, and this is what Christ is after. See, what's, what's interesting is as he's doing this, both of these mountains are really kind of represented here you have these Samaritans who are very enthusiastic, who are very zealous in their beliefs. They, they had persevered through a lot, but they di- weren't worshiping the true living God. They were enthusiastic. They were committed, but it was nonsense. And on Jerusalem, you have the truth of God's word before them. They had the Hebrew Bible before them. From the Jewish people, Jesus would come. And they had just kind of set up some sort of traditional, crazy, works-based, pharisaical system that never moved them. But beloved, who is the Father after? Whom by his Holy Spirit is he seeking those who worship in what? In spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. We lift high the name of Christ. And this really blows the woman away, doesn't it? Verse 25, she's like, she immediately goes to, hey, only the Messiah, only the Savior could say something like this, right? This, this has to be God before us. And he responds. Anybody that says, you know, like, oh, Jesus didn't know he was God, didn't know he was Messiah, just take him to John 4, 26. Yep, I'm him. I'm him. I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. See, Jesus has come and he's transformed the way that this woman worships. And through her life, through this encounter with this outcast woman, he now radically transforms her life. I want to read this quote to you from this book, Worship, by John MacArthur, just to kind of summarize this passage. He says this, the terminology Jesus employed to speak of God to the Samaritan woman in John 4 is significant. 
His entire discourse on the subject of worship focused on the importance of an appropriate response to a, a proper understanding of the nature of God. The location of worship is no longer the main concern. He told the woman, the issue is not where you worship, but rather whom you worship and how you worship. Beloved, may God see fit to never let our worship veer off course. May he make this a place, our church, Redemption Bible Church, a place that is fixed vertically on the God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever responding to the truth with zeal and spirit because our mind, our heart, our bodies have been moved to reply to him in praise because he has done great things, has he not? This is how we worship. This is what is true worship, that God is great and we respond in spirit and in truth. Let's pray now. God in heaven, we do worship you. We come before you because you are you're great. But really, God, you, we come before you because you've come after us. You have sought after us. You have made yourself known to us in great and mighty ways. Lord, we are this woman. We are this woman whose affections are askew, who are looking for worship in all the wrong people and all the wrong places and doing it in all the wrong ways. And so would you come this morning by your spirit and would you fix that in our minds and our thinking and our understanding? God, you're so good. You have an appointment with us today. So be glorified in our life now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.